This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Little Rock, Pastor Mac, Mickey Mantle, Kerouac, Sputnik, Show and Light, Bridge on the River Quest, Lebanon, Charles de Gaulle, California Baseball, again, Out of the Park. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that is a number one song that's a skip and a trip around the story of the post-war world. Our guru is Billy Joel, our mission is to feed our heads and our pledge is that together we will learn without ever feeling like we're ever learning. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, should we get toasty around the fire? I'd love it. And what are we throwing on the inferno today? (laughs) Well, I don't know if we are throwing this on the bonfire, but guess what? If it's Billy, we're talking about baseball again. Yay! Yay! Specifically the lyric, California baseball. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, I do have to say that even though initially I was resistant to the idea of being force-fed all of these baseball episodes because this is the fifth (laughs) baseball episode of this entire series. I'm now coming around to it, not just because we have a luscious recurring guest who I enjoy very much, but I also have been enjoying becoming an instant expert about a sport because I've had a couple of occasions to go to a royal polo match. Oh. Yes. And uh, speaking about strange and abstruse and somewhat obscure, at least to me, sports. And one time when I was at one of these royal polo matches, I got the lowdown from an expert, from an ex-polo player, about how it all worked. And then I was able to deploy the information in a flirtatious encounter with a Hollywood star named Stephen Moyer, who played Vampire Bill. In True Blood, if you remember that show from quite a few years ago. And um, I was quite a fan of Vampire Bill. And uh, he was all ears as I explained the ins and outs of polo. (laughs) And so I'm hoping that in learning about baseball, I can further deploy this information in a very, oh, I don't know, loaded encounter and uh, maybe have a little bit of going from first to second to third and beyond base. (laughs) Well, Katie, I'm going to give you a possibly meaningless segue. You were at the polo grounds for that (laughs) conversation. And one of the teams we're talking about today, their home stadium in New York was also the polo grounds. (gasps) Bum, bum, bum. That is amazing. I love how your mind works. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we have talked about, let's just recap all of our baseball-oriented shows. Okay. So Number we, one. Number one. Uh, Joe DiMaggio. And number two. Brooklyn's got a winning team. Coming in at three. Campanella. And in fourth. Mickey Mantle. That was a good one. I really liked that one. So um, today, we're bringing back sports commentator, ex-pro baseball player, the author of many successful books, and most importantly, looks good right off the bus, Josh Chetwin. Hello. Hey, Katie, I look forward to being your uh, sommelier for pickups. (laughs) (laughs) You're my wingman. Exactly. Yeah. Well, believe me, I need it. So let us set the scene here for this idea behind California baseball, which is the fact that two New York teams, the Dodgers and the Giants, 
move from New York City to California. First of all, they have a rivalry, perhaps the greatest sports rivalry of all time. Why is this? Well, I mean, baseball and New York were synonymous in the first half of the 20th century in the United States. It was the home to three of the most high-profile teams. You had the New York Yankees in the American League, but you had two teams in the National League in the New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers. And as a result, because it was the big spotlight. I mean, New York would be the big spotlight for anything during that period, right? But with baseball being America's pastime, you had these two teams battling out, one, the Giants in Upper Manhattan, the other, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and of course, Brooklyn. But because these two teams were housed in the same league, played each other so often during the regular season, battled for that opportunity to get to the World Series, it was one that had tremendous attention. I have to say, Josh, I have become, in the course of our conversations about baseball, tremendously fond of the Brooklyn Dodgers. There's names that meant nothing to me before that now bring a tear to my eye. People like Pee Wee Reese, the Duke, Duke Snyder, Roy Campanella, of course, Carl Erskine. And I also find myself drawn to their record of comparative failure in the World Series until famously Brooklyn's got a winning team. So when I first read about the Dodgers leaving Ebbetsfield, which is a ground I would have loved to have gone to, and travelling the full 2,796 miles to Los Angeles, I admit I was heartbroken. Well, you wouldn't have been alone if you were to get into your time travel machine and go back to 1957 slash 1958 when this was all going down. There were songs written about it, Tom. I mean, the heartbreak for Dodger fans and for Brooklyn and what that team represented to them was one, I remember reading articles, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I remember reading articles in the mid to late 80s about Dodger fans Brooklyn Dodger fans who had moved out to Los Angeles to be in the entertainment industry or to be an accountant. And they refused to go to LA Dodger games because they still felt spurned from their childhood. 30 years later, they were still angry. Completely different attitude amongst New York Giants fans because they were limited at that point. The Giants fan base had been diminishing tremendously. And this was all a reflection. This whole story is really a reflection of a, a cultural tectonic plate shift that was going on in the United States. So Manhattan, right, was the center of New York, right in the epicenter. But what that meant was that fewer and fewer people were living there. They were all moving out to the suburbs, Brooklyn being effectively one of the boroughs, one of the suburbs. So when you think of the New York Giants, they were having such a diminishing fan base at this point, a thousand people going to games in the cavernous 15,000 seat, 50,000 seat, excuse me, polo grounds. But the Dodgers were at the heart of this suburb. And the fans, there were dem bombs. We've talked about this in, in a previous episode. The love, the, the connection between the team and the community in Brooklyn uh, was ironclad. So for the team to leave them, it was the ultimate betrayal. It was, it was something that I don't think Dodger fans believed could happen until it actually did happen. Katie, there is one particular Dodgers fan who I've been thinking about since we came across this topic. That is a woman called Hilda Chester, 
who was also known as Howling Hilda. She was a Dodgers fan, maybe the most famous fan in baseball history. She apparently had an extremely loud voice. She had a very strong Brooklyn accent. She first went to Ebbets Field with a frying pan and an iron ladle and would bash them together. She was then given a cowbell as a gift by the players. Um, And Josh, it's her I'm thinking about who must be the most heartbroken of all. She, she very famous fan, uh, but I think she's more reflective than uh, the outlier. So when you look at her and you tell that story, Tom, it's not the thought that, oh, she must have been most brokenhearted, but that she was reflective of a whole category of Brooklynites who were brokenhearted because she wasn't alone. There was this huge drum. There was this very famous faux symphony that would play there. Uh, the fan base was diehard. Um, it, was, it was a throwback again uh, to where fans still believed that these players were part of their community, that the team was part of who they were. And uh, yeah, Hilda was certainly an exemplar of that, but was definitely not alone uh, and very representative. And what was the reason? Was there a strategy for two New York City teams to move to the same state? Well, it was all about the money, Katie. This was the start of a process that has become so regular in sports, particularly in the United States, which is teams that are a part of a community holding that community ransom in order to get what they believe is the necessary support, but really what is kickbacks and money in order to keep that team there. It's a form of sports extortion. So the Dodgers, and particularly Walter O'Malley, felt that Ebbets Field, their home, this really cozy, comfy $30,000 stadium right in the heart of Brooklyn wasn't enough for the team to make the kind of money that Walter O'Malley felt it needed to make. And that's keeping in mind that the Dodgers were a profitable enterprise. They just felt, O'Malley felt, that he should get more. So going back into the mid-50s, O'Malley had been pushing Brooklyn and its government to help fund a one-of-a-kind stadium. It would have been called the Dodger Dome. And Buckminster Fuller, very famous architect, was going to create the first ever domed stadium in Brooklyn. You don't think of Brooklyn as being that high-flying place where you'd have the first domed stadium. Uh, The first domed stadium would actually come a a decade later, a little more than a decade later, in the Astrodome in Houston. But he kept on pushing, pushing. It became clear that Brooklyn was going to be unwilling to pony up the type of cash necessary where O'Malley could get a very inexpensive stadium. So O'Malley looked elsewhere and Los Angeles was the perfect place for him to go. O'Malley was very powerful in baseball circles. So he basically pulled the Giants in and, and got Major League Baseball. There's a lot of discussion about what was happening in those back rooms. But basically, the understanding is that Major League Baseball, because of O'Malley, were pushing for two teams to go to the West Coast so that it wouldn't be such a crazy amount of travel. You'd at least have two teams there to help defray the travel. And that's kind of how it went down. I had no idea, Josh, before I started reading about this, that at this point in Major League Baseball, there were no teams in Major League Baseball west of St. Louis or south of Washington, D.C., that it was a sport concentrated in the Northeast and the Midwest. Well, I mentioned, Tom, that this story of all the stories that Billy Joel talks about in this song is the one that has the most 
cultural impact. You know, obviously people love Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle and the Dodgers when they won in 1955. But this story really speaks to the change that was occurring in America, which was that all the culture had come from the Northeast, New York, that whole corridor, Boston. That's where America's culture really started to emanate from when you think of the first half of the 20th century. But now it's changing, right? You have Los Angeles, which is uh, Hollywood, which is such a hub of culture. And you're seeing that because of radio, because of television, that there is a connection more across the country, what Americans call the flyover part of the country, uh, that is relevant. And those cities are growing. So Kansas City gets a team. You know, you're starting to make that move westward. It's, it's the manifest destiny uh, that baseball is reflecting at this point. And so the desire to have teams on the West Coast was paramount for Major League Baseball. America's pastime can't be America's pastime if you don't have teams from coast to coast. So this was something that they definitely wanted, and it shouldn't be surprising just from a mass standpoint, right? Is it Los Angeles in 1950 was the fourth largest city. By 1960, it would be third. You had San Francisco that was just outside of the top 10, but right around there. And these were the two largest cities without a Major League Baseball team. So the desire, the need for the baseball potentates to have their sticky little fingers on the West Coast was very high by this point. A lot of this makes sense to me, Josh. So the idea that the owners of these big teams want to dominate a city, don't they? So the cities where there is more than one Major League Baseball team are often the ones to lose a team. So Boston loses the Braves, Philly loses the A's to Kansas. But there's something I don't understand, and this is because I was brought up with British sports, and that is the geographical hold that a team has. So only once really in British football or in English football has a team almost as a franchise relocated, which was when Wimbledon were moved at the behest of their owner to Milton Keynes and became the Milton Keynes Dons. But fundamentally, they became a different club and all the Wimbledon fans didn't follow them to Milton Keynes, partly because it's too far to go, partly because it was no longer their club. They started a Phoenix club, as they've become known, and Wimbledon began at the bottom tier of English football and have risen through the leagues over the past 15 years to the point that when we record this episode, they are in exactly the same division as the MK Dons. The question, the very long-winded way, Josh, of saying that it's really strange when you grow up in Britain to imagine that you could sever these geographical bonds and that a club would still live on. Well, well there are two issues uh, to speak about uh, in terms of your question. Uh, the first is people think of America as a democracy. It's a capitalistic country, first and foremost. Money will talk, and most of the structures that we think of in the U.S. are built around that opportunity for financial growth. So getting to the second piece of it, the idea of promotion and relegation that occurs in English football would be anathema to the process of how sports are done in the United States. You want to pick the best city to maximize that financial growth, and you want to create a level of certainty with that organization. So if that means moving a team and then moving them again to a better city, it's about the team and the health of that team that has made that investment more than it is about the connection to community, which to me is heartbreaking because I agree with you. I mean, I think that sports at their best are a interwoven within the communities in which they exist. 
and they are not just about names on, on the back of the jersey, but this was really probably the first example with the Dodgers, again, more than the Giants, of really ripping the heart of that connection between community and team apart. Yeah, so Josh, they are severing the umbilical cord between team and community, but the teams themselves are suffering this dislocation. How did they adapt? Did everybody just have to move lock, stock, and barrel? Or did some of the players opt out? Or did perhaps some of the owners just say, use this as an excuse to uh, ditch some dead wood? Well, it's interesting because the teams were in very different places in 1958, which was the first season. I guess it was the the, the winter of 1957 when they finally uh, made the announcement, or October, so the fall. And the Giants had a relatively young team. Uh, you had Willie Mays and Johnny Antonelli, who were really the two best play- Antonelli, excuse me, who were the two best players. Antonelli, their starting pitcher, and Willie Mays, one of the greatest players of all time. It was a really hard move for Mays, and you know we think of racism as endemic throughout the United States even to this day. But it was really on the stage during this period because Willie Mays one of the greatest baseball players that ever was and was seen as such at this time, he was told initially that the home he wanted to buy, he couldn't buy because it was an all-white neighborhood. Mm. Now, eventually, the mayor of San Francisco stepped in, a number of other people stepped in, and he was able to get that house. But you can only imagine going from a community where he would go out and play stickball with the local kids to going to a place where he wasn't even initially allowed to buy a house must have been incredibly shocking for him. In terms of the Dodgers and the move to Los Angeles, Don Drysdale, who's one of the great Dodger pitchers, a Hall of Famer as well, uh, he said in one of his uh, autobiographies that if they had have polled the players, that the vote would have been 25 to stay in Brooklyn, zero to make the move. So many of these former Dodgers who had experienced the community of Brooklyn and were now moving to Los Angeles, which is famously diffuse, Right, uh, you know, when they eventually built Dodger Stadium, it had more parking lot than it had stadium. I mean, this massive parking lot because Los Angelinos are known for getting in their car and driving from point A to point B with no interaction in between. Uh, there, you know, there had been a trolley system early in the 20th century, but now this was a town where you didn't really rub elbows with people until you got to the place you went to. So, really, very different for the players, uh, and I think difficult. Katie, I hope this isn't indecorous of me, but I have noticed a single bead of perspiration has appeared on your forehead to match the two beads of perspiration on mine. This is a signal to me that we need a short break for some adverts before we return in a moment. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. <laughs> So, Josh, how did the players themselves adapt to their new homes? You talked about Willie Mays, unfortunately, coming up against racism uh, and redlining when he was trying to buy his lovely new home. But how 
did the lifestyle changes present themselves to the players for better or for worse? Well, I think Los Angeles was was a huge impact because you were with Hollywood and there was that nexus. I mean, you had Don Drysdale showing up on the Brady Bunch. Uh, you know, it was just a totally different environment. Uh, so they got they popped up on television shows and uh, in various light entertainment guises. You're saying exactly, exactly. I mean, it's hard not to go Hollywood when you're in Hollywood, and I think that there was definitely that impact. Uh, the Dodgers were more successful. Uh, they would win a couple of World Series. Uh, they won in uh, the year after uh, they moved to Los Angeles in 1959. They'd win a couple more in the 60s. So they were a successful team. So I think that that relationship w- was a lot easier. Uh, San Francisco sort of fell into mediocrity when they the Giants moved out there. They were already sort of trending in that direction. They had won a World Series in 1954, and the team was already starting to fail. Uh, San Francisco was a difficult place to play. Uh, Ultimately, the Dodgers moved into Dodger Stadium, which was one of the true, it still is to this day, one of the true great baseball meccas, and I can describe that for you if you want. Whereas the Giants, they played in in Seal Stadium, which was cold and windy. Johnny Antonelli just complained incessantly in that first season about how cold it was. And, you know, there's always the, the really famous quip about San Francisco, which is uh, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. <laughs> right. So it, it was not probably a favorite place. If someone told a player, you've been traded, and they said, where to? And they were told San Francisco, there was probably a little bit of a sigh. I've been to Candlestick Park, Katie, and I would agree with everything Josh says. It was a July day and it was a three-coater. It oh. was it was that it was that cold. You had a puffer jacket. You had a cardigan underneath the puffer jacket. And, and I would have liked a hat with ear flaps. <laughs> Josh, I'm just wondering what that final game at Ebbets Field was like. It's September the 24th, 1957. The Dodgers are playing the Pittsburgh Pirates. Were there fans there as uh, an extended wake? Well, to be honest, I think that the attendance was reflective of the anger. There were a little over 6,000 fans at the final game, a stadium of 30,000, a stadium that could easily get filled when the Dodgers were successful. But a lot of people stayed away. I think that there was a lot of bitterness by that point. But of course, there were people who loved their team so much and it was so heartbreaking that they went anyway. Uh, And, you know, I've seen pictures of a video that still exists of that final game looking at old women in the stands with a little handkerchief daubing their eyes. Uh, It wasn't just about little kids who love sports. Uh, It was everyone in that community for the people who would go. And I'm sure that there were easily another 24,000 people who would have gone on a normal final game of the season if not for the fact that they had felt so hurt by Walter O'Malley moving that team away. So did the Giants and the Dodgers come together in their new homes in California? Yes. So the first game uh, was played in San Francisco at Seal Stadium, the old uh, PCL, Pacific Coast League Stadium. It was sold out and, you know, the energy was palpable. Uh, The excitement that we had discussed that finally... San Francisco was a major league city. And that's how cities often define themselves in this era. You weren't a major league city until you had major league sports teams. It's weird that sports could 
define what kind of city you were. You know, we think of, uh, you know, the UK and, right, you need a cathedral to be a city. You needed a sports cathedral in the United States uh, to be a true city. And so San Francisco was having their moment. There was a huge parade uh, down Market, down the major thoroughfare in San Francisco for it. Uh, and it was an, ex- the game itself wasn't that exciting. The Giants uh, beat up on the Dodgers in that game. Uh, so the home team was quite happy. But there was tremendous excitement. Uh, That first season for both teams, they did great in terms of attendance. Um, There was just the the thrill of becoming finally a major league city. There is compensation of sorts for the bereaved of New York, Josh, in the arrival of the Mets as an expansion team in 1962. Yeah, I mean, the Mets were interesting. Um, Of course, they didn't play in either uh, Brooklyn or in Manhattan. Um, They were in another borough. And they uh, tried to embrace being the replacement, the substitute for both those teams. If you go and look at their uniforms, there were a combination of the very famous orange that was the color of the emblem for the New York Giants, along with the blue for their other main color, which was the Dodgers color. So they embraced being that team that would take over as the representative in the National League for New York. The Mets are a beloved team in New York, very much second-tier status to the Yankees, uh, and, and I don't think they'll ever have the following that, say, a Brooklyn Dodgers team has. And part of that is just also because of the time and place that they were developed, that now all of a sudden... People followed players, and they didn't have that same connection. It was sort of one spit and twice shy type of attitude towards teams. That I think there is a love for the Mets, but the depth is not as great because we had changed in the United States how we connected to sports teams. You know, Tom, you're banging on and on about how betrayed the <laughs> New Yorkers must have felt about their teams abandoning them. But actually, you make a great point because... I think what Billy Joel is trying to say is that he also is feeling rather aggrieved and uh, perhaps is poking at both of these teams by mentioning California baseball. Do you think, Josh, that it's likely as a young baseball lover that uh, he would have felt abandoned as well? Well, yeah. And I think a large portion of it is baseball. But then it's also a reflection of the cultural shift that I've been talking about. If you grew up in New York, you grew up in the New York suburbs, you were growing up in the the cultural mecca of the world yeah. in, in the 50s. Sure. And you thought that would never change, right? As a kid, you know, you probably were puff chest saying, hey, I'm a New Yorker, right? Right. I am part of the center of the world. Well, this was a reflection that the world was changing. Right. That maybe there were other places, not just outside of the confines of the United States, but within the country that were equally as important culturally. And the loss of these two teams that represented, hey, we are the three-team city of America's pastime. Hold on, Billy. You're no longer that. You've got your singular team now, and these other teams have left. I, I don't think it was something that would have been obvious to a kid. But probably somewhere in, in your heart, you're realizing, maybe we've diminished a little bit. Maybe being in New York wasn't what it once was. Josh, you grew up in Los Angeles. Are the Dodgers responsible for young little Josh becoming interested in baseball? It was where I went growing up, Katie, for sure. Uh, Because I couldn't 
do it easy. I was actually a Boston Red Sox fan growing up for a whole host of reasons unrelated. But if I was ever going to go to a baseball game, it was to go to Dodger Stadium. And there is no doubt that when I even talk of Dodger Stadium, there's a lump in my throat because sports and childhood for, for many kids are, are so deeply intertwined. And so when you think about walking into those stadiums for the first time, I, I remember I had my 12th birthday party. I picked my three closest friends and we got great seats at Dodger Stadium right above the dugout on the first base side. And the nostalgia of my childhood is so tightly tied to going to those games. LA was always known for its golden hour, for that moment right at dusk where you really felt that golden light. It's why Hollywood loved it so much is that you could shoot, especially when color came around, for that wonderful, beautiful moment of riding off into the sunset. And Dodger Stadium encapsulated that. You had palm trees out. It, it didn't look out into the city. It looked out into sort of this this sort of green area that, that really looked very LA. Yeah, it's in the um, it's in the middle of a canyon, and so you have the hillsides rising above it, and you have the the scrub brush, and you have pine trees, and you have the birds chirping, and beautiful fragrance filling the air as well in the springtime and the summertime. You know, you have the gardenia filling the air. I used to live in Los Angeles, so I'm really familiar with, and the star jasmine. So, just as you say, it's a, a total, almost sensual experience being out there. Absolutely, but of course, it, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about its history a little bit because. Because uh, it is, in a way, the original sin of the Los Angeles Dodgers. When Walter O'Malley was originally going to go to Los Angeles, he had bought, as I mentioned, the Los Angeles Angels, so he owned Wrigley Field, which was in South Central. O'Malley was like, this stadium's not going to do. It was a small stadium. There wasn't a lot of parking. So he had his eye on an area of Los Angeles known as Chavez Ravine, over 300 acres. He was going to be able to build this beautiful stadium. The problem was is it was a thriving Mexican-American community there. He didn't care. And he basically strong-armed Los Angeles into making a swap nine acres in South Central for th over 300 acres at Chavez Ravine. This was so unpalatable that there were people who forced this onto the ballot. There was a proposition. But uh, because it was the Dodgers and because you know, there were still political machines back then, the swap actually passed. And this community basically got leveled. And people who didn't want to leave this, as, as you pointed out, Katie, this beautiful Mecca, you know, an Eden within a city, uh, were forced out. And it, it, to be honest, the stories are heartbreaking. Uh, and as I learned about this as I was older, it definitely put a bittersweet twinge in my mouth about thinking about going to Dodger Stadium. Well, thinking about bittersweet twinges, Josh, I have loved having your contribution to the show once again. But Unless you fancy coming back to talk about, for example, British politician sex, Ho Chi Minh, or Ayatollahs in Iran. No, that's just a silly, silly <laughs> suggestion. That's very silly, Tom, because obviously Josh is a sports expert, so he should come back to talk about hula hoops. <laughs> that's that's going to be my proposition. Here, here's the thing is I would come and talk about any of those things. I think you would just be disappointed, <laughs> but I would be happy to. Yeah, but you'd look good. Right off the bus, Josh. Ah, uh, bless. Thank you so much. <laughs>
Thanks so much. That was brilliant as always. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, guys. Best of luck. How, how much longer do you have to go till you're... Oh, yeah, uh, a good year. A year. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, yeah. Best of luck. It has been such a pleasure. You're both uh, such wonderful broadcasters. So are you. You, uh, you don't need me to tell you that, but you're so good at what you do. So, Best to you both. All right. You too. Cheers, you. Josh. Bye. Katie, I've seldom seen your lids so loaded. Your eyes are... Still open, yes, but at about half their usual function. Half mast. Yeah. Um, I am sorry to say goodbye to Josh, though, because he is great for riding shotgun on the old uh, baseball facts and figures, and you know he's played the game himself, so he's able to convey some sort of tumescence about the subject which I am still mustering <laughs> in my own nether regions. I can see that, Katie. I never knew a great deal about baseball before because it didn't really impact on life as the BBC's chief sports writer. But I have loved my journey through it. And yeah. I do consider myself a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. I've loved hearing about the picaresque lives of people like Roy Campanella and oh, Joe and Mickey, DiMaggio and Mickey, and Mickey Mantle. Mantle. Yeah, yeah. These heroes, these great bastions of of dreaming for American sports fans. Um, and I'm also very sad to say goodbye to Josh. Yeah. And we shall have him back at the rap party whenever the rap party shall be. Or for hula hoops, because there is some <laughs> sort of sporting skill involved in that. If you want another crowd podcast to listen to, you can uh, check out Death of a Rockstar. It's narrative storytelling at its most immersive. The stories of the stars we lost too soon, the ones who rocked our stages and shook our stereos. Katie, the new series has just started, and if I may say so, the first episode is an absolute banger. It's Jimi Hendrix. Well, you would say that because you... (laughs) You wrote it. You're a master of the pen. Uh, So why don't you listen to it and assess Tom's fine work? I do believe that you will be satisfied. Search Death of a Rockstar and subscribe. And next week, Katie, is our first ever true crime episode. It is Starkweather Homicide. It refers to Charles Starkweather, who went on a killing spree in Wyoming and Nebraska in early 1958. And oh, the bodies were piling up. Katie, it will be a dark one, but we shall hold each other's hands and get through it together. Yes, we will. I'm relying on you. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, 
and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.